Have you signed up to Spiked's daily newsletter yet? It's called Today on Spiked. Every day you'll get a roundup of all our content, plus some exclusive commentary from the Spiked team. So to never miss a thing on Spiked, go to spiked-online.com slash newsletters and sign up to Today on Spiked. Socially transitioning a child, treating them as if they really are the opposite sex is a massive psychosocial intervention. You know, it's not the kind of thing that you should be doing because someone told you on the internet or because someone's kind of threatened you with the Equality Act. And that's what schools are doing. So even before these girls are getting anywhere close to a clinic or a doctor, they're already being facilitated to believe in a lie. You know, children that go on puberty blockers go on to cross-sex hormones. They go on to be sterilised. And most of these are children who are likely to grow up gay if they were left alone. I mean, it's, it's the most obscene thing. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Maya Forstater. Maya is a business and international development researcher. She came to public prominence between 2019 and 2021 when she took action against her employer for sidelining her over her belief in biological sex and her scepticism on certain transgender ideas. Maya's case helped to establish that gender-critical beliefs are protected under the Equality Act. Maya is also a founder of the lobby group Sex Matters, which seeks to re-establish that sex matters in rules, laws, policies, language and culture. Maya is also a key figure in the campaign Respect My Sex If You Want My Ex, which puts pressure on electoral candidates to acknowledge the reality of womanhood and to agree that sex is more important than gender. So Maya, let's talk about your new campaign group, Respect My Sex If You Want My Ex. And it seems extraordinary that such a movement would be necessary in 2022, but here we are. So this is basically a movement where women are saying to the political class, if you want my vote, if you want my ex, you have to acknowledge the reality of womanhood, you have to acknowledge the reality of biological sex, and you have to talk about the fact that women have specific needs. So just explain to us why you and your comrades thought that this movement was necessary and what you hope to achieve. Hi, Brendan. Yes, so respect my sex if you want my ex. It's not a group, but it's actually three groups. So um, the group that I co-founded is Sex Matters, and we're focused on policy. And then there's a group called the Women's Rights Network, which are uh, grassroots, often first-time activists, women who've never really engaged in the political process, who feel really, really angry about this. Um, and then there's a group called Women Uniting, which is women from different political parties working together. So women who are, who are politically active within the Conservatives, Labour, Lib Dem, and, and all of the parties who are feeling homeless within their own parties. So, so it's those three groups. And it was prompted really by, I mean, this has been going on for, you know, years and years, but politicians are now being asked, what is a woman? And they're being put on the spot and 
you know, they could not come up with good answers. Uh, some of them have, have started to now. And we just thought that this local election was a chance to ask politicians whether they understand the issue um, and what they're going to do to protect uh, single-sex services in their local area. So let's start talking about how, how we got into this situation. So firstly, to begin with, the situation itself. So we're in a situation now where, as you've just indicated there, we have politicians who, in many cases, cannot or will not answer the basic question, what is a woman? And so we've seen Keir Starmer recently uh, floundering in response to the question, can a woman have a penis? Which, to my mind, is is one of the easiest questions one could ever be asked. We've had Annalise Dodds saying, well, it's complicated, it's complex, there are different situations and different definitions. And even Boris Johnson, who seems to have come to his senses a little bit recently he he was flustered when he was asked do only women have cervixes last year when that became a huge talking point bizarrely so sometimes i kind of grapple with the surrealism of the fact that we have these highly educated politicians who cannot answer the question what is a woman so just to kick off some of the this discussion how do you think we got into this situation where members of the political elite are scared to say what a woman is i mean you can trace it back a long way, but a key milestone in all of this was the Gender Recognition Act in 2004, mm. which changed the legal definition of woman from being what everybody knows a woman is and what everyone knows a man is um, to being an administrative thing. So it changed from being biology to being what it says on your birth certificate. And in practice, for most people, what it says in your birth certificate is your biological sex, but some people were allowed to change their biological sex. And when they brought that law in, they thought it wouldn't affect a lot of other things. They just thought it would be a very, very small, tiny minority of people who they expected would have gone through surgery and would have sort of disappeared into the general population, you know, they, they had this idea of the passing trans woman, uh, you know, somebody who was born male, who to all intents and purposes appears female. But in practice, that's impossible for an adult to do. And, you know, lots of men who transition, transition after the age of 50, they've lived a whole life with testosterone. They may or may not have surgery. and they are accepted in society as transsexuals. Nobody thinks that they're really women, but you know, people should be free to live their life. So that kind of material reality that there are people who wish to live as if they were the opposite sex was legally changed so that we were supposed to accept that somebody who was born male and who is male is actually female. And the lawmakers at the time, who are not the politicians now, thought this is not going to change anything. Um, and so these politicians are left kind of clearing up a mess that they didn't make. But it is a but it is a serious mess because when they passed that law, they didn't think, you know, what do we do when there's a conflict between women and men who want to identify as women? And that's what these politicians are being asked to to deal with, and that's what they're frightened of dealing with. Uh, w one of the things I 
really admire about respect my sex if you want my ex is the confronting questions that you are suggesting that people should ask political candidates. Now, these shouldn't be confronting questions, but in the crazy 21st century they are. So, for example, one of the questions is, can you tell me what a woman is? And I cannot wait to ask the the next person who knocks on my door canvassing for my vote. That is literally going to be the first question I ask them. Um, And then there's this other question, which is obviously incredibly important. And I wanted to ask you why it is important, which is the question, what do you think is most important, sex or gender? Now, I wanted to really delve into that a little a little bit with you and talk about the difference between sex and gender. So obviously, what you want a politician to say in response to that question is that sex is more important than gender. But could you just explain a bit about why you and other uh, women who are campaigning against, I guess, the excesses of the transgender movement or the ideology of uh, transgenderism, why you think it's so important to elevate the reality of sex over the subjective category of gender? So gender can mean lots of different things. Um, and most people, when they say gender, they really mean sex. They, you know, it's like the yeah. thing on a form, sex, and someone answers, yes, please. So, you know, they've changed it to gender just so that people wouldn't have to think about the word sex. Um, but then it also means this idea of having an innate feeling of being male or female or neither or both or fluid and that that can replace sex in situations where sex matters and so we're really asking for you know for politicians to understand the difference between sex as a as a reality and gender as an idea and you know in society there used to be lots and lots of rules about what you could and couldn't do because of your sex you know women couldn't vote women couldn't work in certain professions they you know all of all of those kinds of things they couldn't get mortgages without their um husband say so there were rules about who could marry who based on sex and all of that has gone away thankfully but there are still rules that are based on sex because sex does still matter, um, particularly around bodily privacy, around sport, around safety. And so what we're trying to do is get politicians uh, to understand that where sex matters, they need to protect it and not confuse it with the idea of gender. That's a very clear outline and perfectly rational. And you mentioned earlier the fact that we we used to acknowledge the existence of transsexuals and there would have been very little truck with the idea that they were literally women. And one of the most, I think one of the most chilling phrases of our time is trans women are women. And the reason I find it chilling is firstly, because it is factually incorrect. It's, it's an absurdity. It's, it's simply untrue but also because it is repeated as this kind of mantra. It's almost become this religious mantra that people just say it again and again and again until it kind of leaks through into people's, into the minds of dissenters like you and others. But isn't isn't a key part of this, and, and you've been at the forefront of this for the past few years, isn't a key part of this just to turn around to people who say that and say to them, no, trans women are not women. And and to get it into a situation where politicians not only are capable of defining what a woman is, but are brave enough to say that a trans woman is not a woman. 
Absolutely. I mean, once you've defined what a woman is, you know, the, the correct answer for any politicians that are listening is adult human female. Um, you know, once you've defined that set and a man is an adult human male, then it's clear that a trans woman, which is a male person, cannot be a woman. You know, it, it's just really basic. I mean, that's the pro- that's why they can't give a definition of woman because they've spent the past five years repeating trans women are women and looking away where yeah. people who have a, have disagreed with that have been bullied and harassed and called transphobes and, and cancelled um, and they've not said anything. And now, you know, they're being asked to think and to be honest about what they understand about the two sexes. Spiked couldn't do what we do without the generosity of listeners and readers like yourself. Those of you who donate £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year are eligible to become a Spiked supporter. Being a Spiked supporter gives you access to a whole range of perks, including discounted or free tickets to all our events, discounts in our shop, and the ability to bookmark and comment on articles. So become a Spike supporter today by going to spiked-online.com slash supporters. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. I want to come back to the issue of cancellation and demonization, which I think is a a key part of the uh, misogynistic pushback against um, people like you. Uh, But the first thing I, I want to ask a couple of more questions about is why we need to defend the idea of woman and women and womanhood. Now, there's the obvious reason, which is that it's good to live in, live in a reasoned society in which we tell the truth about things and in which we recognize scientific realities and social realities. That's a good thing in and of itself. But also, as you've already said, there is the issue of women's right to privacy, women's right to safety, um, the issue of women's sports. And I had Sharon Davis, who's a hero of mine on this podcast recently, talking about how essential it is to keep men out of women's sports. And I've always found it completely extraordinary that one of the supposedly progressive campaigns of the 21st century is essentially for the right of men to go into women's changing rooms. And I've referred to it as as flashers' rights. You're essentially arguing that men should have the right to disrobe in front of women and girls who don't want to see that and should have every right not to see that. So how much do you think that cuts to the heart of this issue? The fact that women, firstly, some women will feel vulnerable around men for various reasons that are really not much of our business, but also that women deserve the freedom of association and the freedom to privacy uh, according to their sex. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, it's both what is a woman and, you know, defining womanhood, but equally it's what is a man and defining manhood. And I don't mean that in any kind of um, essentialist sense or, you know, when you talk about womanhood, it starts sounding like you're talking about the goddess or something. And, it, you know, it's nothing, <laughs> it's nothing like that. It's, you know, there are two sexes. It's it's the most boring thing. And that's important because, you know, increasingly people are identifying as non-binary. And so then, you know, it's not even about a man saying he's a woman. It's just about a man saying he's not a man, you know, and therefore has the right to choose whether to be 
in the men's or the ladies or the men's or the women's sports just on the basis of being non-binary. And nobody knows what non-binary is other than it includes the category that used to be called transvestites and cross-dressers, you know, have been rebranded as as non-binary. So, you know, it's not just about defending womanhood. It's also about being able to say, that's a man. If we go back in time a little bit to talk about girls and boys who obviously precede um, men and women, I wanted to ask you about the an additional very serious problem in this issue, which is what is happening to young girls in particular. And we know that there have been, uh, I mean, traditionally cross-dressing and, and gender-bending and cha- supposedly changing sex has been something that's been male to female. But in recent years, there has been a rise in young women, often pubescent women, pubescent girls, um, seeking out treatment and hormones and other things that will help them to correct their sex. How damaging do you find that? Because I, I find it simply extraordinary that we live in a world in which young women, some of whom are lesbians, are essentially being medically corrected. And isn't there the potential that that will create a sense of shame amongst young women who are going through certain changes? And that's not good for those individual young girls, and it's not good for society either. Yes. I mean, there's been this extraordinary rise in, as you say, in young women not wanting to grow up to be women. And so they're either identifying as boys or as men or increasingly as as non-binary. And, you know, you have this trans umbrella where all of the all of these different things are kind of put together as being the same thing. So adult transsexuals, adult male transsexuals are considered to be the same thing from a kind of rights perspective as young girls who are unhappy about their bodies and unhappy about growing up in a society where, you know, they're expected to look like perfect Barbie dolls and live up to to all of those kinds of things. And, you know, what's going on for those two groups is quite different, but because they've been put together and because, I mean, you see this in schools, people are bringing in you know, the Equality Act as being the reason why you should treat a child who is gender questioning or gender confused or who identifies as trans as if they've actually changed sex because, you know, people are waving the Equality Act around saying schools must do this because otherwise it's discrimination. But the Equality Act was never meant to be a diagnostic tool for Mm. children with mental health difficulties or with, you know, just the difficulties of growing up and getting through puberty and transitioning a child, socially transitioning a child, treating them as if they really are the opposite sex is a, is a massive psychosocial intervention. You know, it's not the kind of thing that you should be doing because someone told you on the internet or because someone's kind of threatened you with the Equality Act. And that's what, that's what schools are doing. Um, so even before these girls are getting anywhere close to a clinic or a doctor, they're already being facilitated to believe in a lie and and mm-hmm. and to try and escape um, growing up as a as a woman or a girl. And that group of young women, you know, we have social contagions of all sorts through through the ages. You know, when I was when I was at school, it was bulimia you know, the generation after it was cutting, there are 
different ways that different generations kind of act out their pain. And adults shouldn't be facilitating that. Adults should be trying to hold a safe space, you know, an actual safe space, not not what they call a safe space now, you know, for for children to grow up and to experiment and to do stupid things and to try out different aspects of their identity in a way that's not going to harm them um, as they grow up. And giving these girls um, puberty blockers it stops not only their physical development, but also their mental development. It's a massive experiment. And then, you know, children that go on puberty blockers go on to cross sex hormones. They go on to be sterilized in their twenties. And most of these are children who are likely to grow up gay if they were left alone. I mean, it's, it's the most, it's the most obscene thing. And it's, as you say, this whole kind of cancellation thing is preventing or has prevented doctors, professionals, social workers, politicians looking at this thing clearly. I think we are moving on from there. You know, we've had, we're having the Cass review. Dr. Hilary Cass has been commissioned to do an independent review of the gender identity service for young people. And that's a breath of fresh air. She's looking at this with an evidence-based approach. That's a very good description of some of the horrors that are being visited upon young people in particular as a consequence of this contemporary ideology. And and one thing that strikes me while listening to you there is just how regressive it is. Because if you think back to, you know, one of the great gains of modern times is that young women and young girls no longer need to feel ashamed of their bodies. And in earlier religious eras in particular, there was a great deal of shame around the changing female body and what was happening, what would happen to, to girls in particular. And the, the restoration of that shame through this new ideology so that you have girls binding their breasts, for example, or going off to university for the first term and coming home and, and they have moustaches and they've changed their names and they've taken certain hormones, all these things that certain parents have been talking about. It's it's like a reintroduction of that shame of being a woman or, or of becoming a woman. And at the same time, you have this idea that if a young boy is exhibiting feminine qualities or playing with certain toys or liking certain colours or possibly giving off signs that at some point he might become a a gay young man. The idea is he needs to be corrected. He needs to be changed into the correct sex. So isn't there an extraordinarily regressive element to this in terms of this notion that if you have certain qualities or certain forms of behavior, then you need to be shoved into a particular gender box and that's where you belong? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, as you say, it hasn't been that many years that we've had the freedom to think there are lots of different ways of being a girl and a woman, and there are lots of different ways of being a boy and a man, and they're all acceptable to sort of being shoved back into these gender boxes and then saying, you know, if you don't fit, then your body's wrong and your body needs to be fixed. It, it's incredibly regressive. And, and then it's been rebranded as conversion therapy yeah, i mean yeah. you could look at this and say this is this is actually conversion therapy you know looking at a child who exhibits gender nonconformity and may not have figured out their sexual orientation yet and trying to fix their body rather than letting them grow up to work out who they are and who they love is is a form of conversion therapy but now stonewall and the government are seeking to uh, what they say is outlaw 
conversion therapy. But what they're actually going to outlaw is forms of talking therapy of gender confused young people. Absolutely. I think that's a really important point. And what often gets referred to as conversion therapy is sometimes even parental love or other forms of intervention that is actually geared towards trying to assist young people who have mental health troubles or gender dysphoria and trying to put them on the right road. So that's a really key point in this, I think. I want to ask you about the growing pushback against some of this stuff. You've been at the cutting edge of it for quite a while. um, So it'd be remiss of me not to to raise this with you. And I want to kick off by asking you about your own personal experience of losing work because you have a scandalous belief in biological reality and and the existence of women. And that became an incredibly important case through the employment uh, employment tribunal that you went through and the appeal and your eventual victory that, you know, people have the right to hold reasonable scientific uh, uh, beliefs in the 21st century. That was a great victory. Could you just explain what you think was at stake in that process and what it was like for you to go through that, that process? So, I mean, I didn't plan it. Uh, it did. It did just happen. And what happened was, I was working for a think tank that was full of empirical people and economists. And the government was running its consultation on bringing in gender self ID in 2018. And I really thought, I work for a think tank. I ought to be able to engage in this policy debate and tweet about it. And I didn't think that my colleagues would be upset. And in fact, they weren't. None of the colleagues that I worked with in London um, said anything. But the organization I worked for uh, was headquartered in the US, in Washington, DC. And some staff in Washington, DC, who saw my tweets, flagged them up as transphobic. And then over the course of six months, sort of various bits of my job were removed and job offers were removed until the point where the whole job was removed. And at that point, I didn't know that I had any employment rights. And so I tweeted about it and I, and I learned that I did. And from then on, I sort of took the, took the case. And as you say, the, the first bit of it, which was the principle that the belief that sex is real and immutable is protected as a belief, like a religious belief or a non-religious, a philosophical belief, had to be tested because this was the first time a case like this had had come up, at least a non-religious case had come up. And it was both the principle that the belief is, is protected against discrimination, but also that lack of belief, so not sharing the belief of gender ideology is protected. And that's really important because you know, to say you have a belief, it took me a year to figure out this thing, you know, of reading, you know, starting out thinking, oh, yes, I'm, I'm inclusive, you know, I believe in equality, it's all good. And then understanding what uh, gender ideology was asking, and, or, you know, all of the issues, that took me a year, and I'm a researcher. And, you know, and I'm articulate, but everyone has to use single sex services, everyone had, you know, everyone needs to be protected. And so lack of belief is probably more important than belief because lack of belief means, you know, if somebody tells my grandma that someone that she can see is male is female, she can say, 
no, I don't believe it. She doesn't have to have read Judith Butler or have any, you know, have any <laughs> knowledge of any of this stuff. So that so lack of belief is really important. And so I lost the case in 2019 and then I won in 2021. And then I had to go back to the Employment Tribunal for the rest of the case, which is about what actually happened with me and my job, because I'd won on the principle that you can hold this belief and you're protected against discrimination. But then there's the question of, you don't have freedom of speech at work. You can't say anything at work. You know, you have to behave in a professional way and depending on what your job is. So the danger is that you have the belief and the belief is protected, but anytime you open your mouth and express it in any way, that's then condemned as being transphobic and people are people are losing their job. And so then what has had to be tested in this last bit of the employment tribunal, which happened last month, was what happened at my work and why they thought it, I was transphobic. And so what happened in all that process was I learned through the court case what happened over the six months when I was losing my job, when at the time I had no I hadn't seen all the emails going on behind the scenes. Mm. All I knew was that I was starting to feel vulnerable and, um, you know, kind of bits of my job were being taken away and I was being investigated, but I hadn't seen the reports. And then over the course of the tribunal, I got to see all of that and hear about it. And what you saw was that the senior management started off being quite reasonable and saying, well, she's making a nuanced argument. You may or may not agree with it, but you know, we, we're a think tank. We hold open a space for people to disagree with each other. And then as a few people came in and said, that's transphobic, the senior leaders who'd originally said it's nuanced crumbled because they realized that when somebody says that's transphobic for someone else to then say, no, I don't think it is. Let's see where that line is. You know, clearly there are things that are harassment that are transphobic and there are things that are a difference of opinion. Can we, can we draw that line like reasonable people? And they look at it and they realize if I do that, the finger's going to be pointed at me and they think it's not worth it. Yeah. And that I think is what's happening in all kinds of organizations, but it got exposed in the case of, of my ex-employer. Yes. And that's why your case was so important because it really drew attention to what is presumably happening in lo lots and lots of workplaces. And as you say, you're a professional, you have an education, you have a particular position in society. And if you think about women who don't have those things, but who share your views, and it seems to me pretty unquestionable that those kinds of women will either suppress their true views, which is not a good thing for people to do, or they will possibly be hounded out of the workplace or, or sidelined in the workplace because of what they think, because they believe in biological reality. I wanted to ask you what, what you think your case spoke to beyond its importance for you as an individual and its an importance uh, in, in relation to the workplace in terms of what we're allowed to believe and what we're allowed to say. So one of my favorite newspaper headlines, literally of the past few years, was an interview with you in The Telegraph. And the headline was, I am fighting for the right to say men can never be women. And the reason I like that is because there is occasionally a, a very understandable element of pussyfooting around this issue and using preferred pronouns. And I speak as someone who used to use preferred pronouns and then had my mind changed 
by um, a few women I've spoken to who say it's not a good thing to do. And so there is often an avoidance of the crux of the matter, which is, can a man become a woman? And so beyond uh, the importance of this for you as an individual, of course, and the importance of this for the workforce more broadly, in terms of their right to hold or not hold certain beliefs in the workplace, there is also that, isn't there? The right to say that a man, whatever he does, however many drugs he takes, however convincing he might think he, he looks as a woman, he will never be a woman. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, it's not a nice thing to say to somebody mm. who feels hurt by that. But as a category, you must be able to say, it. you know, whenever we're talking about rules and policies and data, you have to be able to say there are two groups, men and women. And when we're talking about safety, we're talking about fairness. Um, we're talking about medicine. In all these areas, we have to say men are men and women are women. And then it doesn't mean you have to run down the street after somebody shouting, yeah. you're a man. You know, it doesn't mean you have to do that. But then you do have to think about in those spaces where it would be legitimate for you to run after someone saying you're a man, yeah. how do you you know, protect everyone from being in those situations. And it's not rocket science. You have your unisex spaces, basically, where people are undressing and so on. And you ask people to follow the rules. And if people follow the rules, then no one's going to chase after anyone shouting, you're a man. So, you know, it's not kind of fighting for the right to be obnoxious yeah. to, to people, but it is fighting for the right to be truthful particularly where we're talking about the kinds of rules that protect people. That can apply to all kinds of things. I mean, this, sex is such an elemental thing, but if you can make people lie about this, what else can you make them lie about? And, and if you break institutional you know, systems for truth-telling and systems for working out what's a good argument and what isn't, and for helping people to disagree constructively, if you break all of that in order to say that some men can be women, that stuff is so valuable because organizations are how we do stuff together. And we do stuff together with people that we disagree on all kinds of things. You know, that's what politics is. That's what organizations are. And to break all of that, because there are some people who want to experience life as the opposite sex. That's what I mean about, you know, when they brought this law in, they didn't think about what they were giving away. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. With most providers like iTunes or Spotify, it's really easy to do with just one click. And if you get this show via YouTube, then make sure you not only subscribe to Spike's YouTube channel, but that you also click the bell so that you are alerted to every new episode. Okay, I want to ask you about hatred um, and misogyny and the extraordinary amount of it that seems to be swirling around in public life at the moment. And it really is, I, I say this as someone who has been criticizing aspects of the trans ideology for a long time, but who has never experienced the level of 
uh, bile that that women receive when when they make the points that you've been making and 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 reasonable points that other people have been making too. And I, I guess my first question on this: so we know that there is this tendency to refer to women like you as transphobes, as bigots, as people deserving of cancellation. Of course, you should have been sacked. You're a horrible person. I mean, this is the kind of cultural pushback that exists. And I wanted to ask you, I guess this is a bit of a chicken and egg question, but is that misogyny, do you think, built into aspects of the trans movement? Or is it a rash response to having their identity questioned? So do you think that there's an element of the ideology of transgenderism, which is not necessarily the same as trans people, which is inherently misogynistic in terms of its outlook and so on, and that's why it expresses these uh, pretty horrific views about women? Or is this just a desperate effort by certain campaigners not to be questioned, to silence irritating people like you what what do you think drives that kind of very misogynistic response that you and others often get yes all of the above i mean i think <laughs> i think you know inherently there is a misogyny in identifying womanhood with makeup hair clothing high heels and there is a disproportionate protection response for this belief which you know in which people lash out and then thirdly is you know the people who are not trans the men who are not trans who i think have seen this as a as an opportunity to be horrible to women under the guise of being progressive um and and that's not necessarily trans people it's nothing to do with being trans it's just this this opportunity to to call women mainly older women you know horrible names and to and to push them out of the workplace so i think it's it's all three of those and i mean you know last sunday i had lunch with jk rowling <laughs> yeah i'll be dropping that for, for a <laughs> while and you know it was just extraordinary that 18 women had lunch together and posted some selfies on twitter and the hatred and the bile and the you know criticism of our appearance was just extraordinary and you know i don't think i would have ended up on the front cover of the times the day after if there wasn't for that i mean it, they're sort of shooting themselves in the foot um but it, it was just extraordinary how much hatred could be released just by 18 women getting drunk together one sunday <laughs> it's interesting you brought that up because i wanted to ask you about this notorious lunch with JK Rowling and, and others that you, you took part in. And um, I don't expect you to spill any secrets or any gossip or anything like that. But um, I did want to ask you what women like you and JK Rowling and others who, who have been at the receiving end of so much extraordinary abuse, how you rationalize that or conceive of it or how, how you think about why it happens and and how it happens. So if you look at JK Rowling, for example, I mean, she has been subjected to the most extraordinary amounts of abuse. She's obviously a, a globally famous person and she attracts an extraordinary amount of bile and rape threats and death threats and comments on what she looks like or comments on her age and things that are explicitly misogynistic. 
And I, I, I wanted to ask what that feels like, I guess, not in an emotional way, but how you make sense of the fact that that is happening and, and, and what it's like to be on the receiving end of, of so much extraordinary hatred for saying something which will strike most people as perfectly rational. I think it goes back to shame. I think it's, you know, the shame mechanism is so powerful for keeping people in line. And you see this, I see this on Twitter when, you know, I always pay attention when people support me on Twitter who are tweeting in their own name with a photograph and you can see who they are. And if a new person does that, they will almost always get two or three people or people tweeting with anime avatars saying something below that is intended to shame them into silence. And it's quite a small thing. It's it's basically, you know, why are you supporting that bigot in some in some form or other? And, you know, and I had this in my in my tribunal, my first tribunal, they said the lawyer for the other side said to me at one point, how do you feel being on the same side as the Daily Mail? You know, that, it was that kind of sh- mild shame. <laughs> and, and I said, I feel fine. It's, it's <laughs> biology. It doesn't mean I agree with them on everything else. Yeah. Um, and that kind of mild shame, you know, you're on the same side as the Daily Mail can kind of ramp up and ramp up until people either say, you know, fuck it, I don't feel any shame. You can't shame me. Hmm. Or they go quiet. So, you know, there's the shame mechanism and then there's the, economic punishment mechanism. Those are the two things that really keep people quiet. You know, threats of violence are quite limited, you know, they're quite high up the scale and quite limited, but you can silence people well before threats of violence with shame and with economic punishment. And, you know, that's not new to this issue. You see that in, in all kinds of authoritarian regimes, cults, religion. It's how we know how to control other people. And so, yeah, I think one of the things about that lunch was there was 18 women who were beyond shame. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a very good thing, something that should be cherished in my view. I think the, the Daily Mail thing always makes me laugh because if it wasn't for the fact that the supposedly liberal press had abandoned uh, women who are campaigning for women's rights, then maybe uh, you guys wouldn't have to turn to outlets like the Daily Mail. So uh, I think that's that argument is always a bit of a non-starter. But I, uh, in relation to what you've just described and what you've just outlined and the fact that there are some women who are beyond shame, which is very good, again, this this hatred that gets poured your way and the way of J.K. Rowling and others is just coming back to the question of how regressive it is, because what you have here is an extraordinary situation where women are basically being told to shut the F up. I mean, literally, I see that phrase all the time these days for talking about what it means to be a woman or for using the word woman or for insisting on the right to speak as they see fit and to organize as they see fit, which is extraordinarily regressive. I mean, one's tempted to say it's like the 1950s, but in some ways it's even worse because at least in the 1950s, you could say what a woman is, even if your view was that women should stay in the home. So it brings me on to a question about feminism, I suppose. And I don't know quite know where you situate yourself in relation to feminism. But one of the tragic realities is that there are some feminists or people who describe themselves as feminists, particularly younger ones in, in some instances, who who have 
sided very much with the trans ideas and with the notion that you can become a woman and that Munro Bergdorf, for example, is as much a woman as Maya Forstater, and and that's reality. So there are some feminists who have who have made that argument and who accept that argument. What do you think is behind that? Is it just confusion? Is it just these political movements which achieved so many great things in the past have been corrupted by new forms of ideology? What do you think is is driving that betrayal? I guess one could call it. I mean, I'm I'm a feminist you know, in the sense of, you know, not being a doormat, (laughs) but I I lack a humanities education. My degree was in agriculture. So I'm a very basic kind of person. And I think of this in terms of, you know, the underlying battle for resources between people and the battle for resources between men and women in relationships and even underlying that, the kind of evolutionary pressures that drive men and women to have evolved in different ways. I think all of that is what's playing out. And then it plays out within a society where we have the internet, you know, that changes everything about how resources are earned and shared and, and competed for. And then we put meaning on top of that. And I think the stories that we tell ourselves about what men are and what women are, are never exactly right. And, you know, the various iterations of feminism are ways of telling that story, but they can be, you know, they can be as wrong as anything. And, and, you know, we kind of tell these stories to justify the power plays we're making and feminism within academia, you know, I mean, is, is, has been used for power plays in the same way as any other set of ideologies has. So, you know, when I hear people say, well, it's the patriarchy, I want to say, well, what's that mean? What, what do you really mean? And, and, you know, it can yeah. be used to, you know, people say, well, as you say, trans women are women. Once you, once you introduce fundamental untruths into these quite complicated ideas, which may or may not be useful in, in different ways, you end up you know, kind of garbage in, garbage out. So, which is why I say, you know, I'm, I'm quite a basic person. Yeah. And I think unless we can, unless we can start <laughs> with some basic truths, then what we construct in terms of feminism is never going to be helpful or useful as a, as a map of the territory. But at the moment I'm focused on sex is real. I think other people can work out the next generation of feminism on the top of that. Okay, so that actually brings me very nicely onto my final question, which is in relation to just how important this is. So I've seen people, maybe it was you, I I can't remember, but I've seen people refer to uh, respect my sex, if you want my ex, as the most important women's movement since the suffragettes. And then, of course, there's your movement, your group, Sex Matters, and you've described very well there why sex matters, why it's important. And of course, from the usual suspects, uh, including some of the more misogynistic types, there has been a lot of ridicule of this idea that this is the most important women's movement since the suffragettes. But to my mind, it makes perfect sense to to make that claim precisely because what's being fought for here is something so fundamental, which is the idea that women are a real thing and that they may have specific needs. And 
actually, even the suffragettes didn't have to make that case. They had to make the case for women to be taken seriously as political actors, but they didn't have to make the case for the fact that women were real things in the world. So that's how important this is, right? This is a fundamental defense of women and reality and truth. Absolutely. And, and you know, it's, I think it's a fundamental defense of democracy. If you can, if you can take away that truth from people, yeah. and it's a truth that matters for women and men, and if you can force people to tell a lie, a fundamental lie in order to keep their job, then, you know, you've captured these powerful institutions that have power over our lives. So I think it even it goes beyond being a woman's issue. It's women who are hurt by this most immediately. It's women and children and vulnerable people. But this is about the levers of power and the institutions of power and the ability of those institutions to function for the benefit of, of people. And, you know, democracy is an imperfect system, but it's the best one we've got. And it's important. I mean, that's how important I think this is. Maya, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Brendan. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.